tension. We believe it's a, a bad thing. Tension causes headaches. Tension causes us to say, honey, you know, will you rub right here? We usually use tension and stress synonymously, and we try to avoid it. In physics, tension is defined as the force transmitted through a rope, string, or wire when pulled by forces acting from opposite sides. The tension force is directed over the length of the wire and pulls energy equally on the bodies at the ends. And so tension, opposite sides, equal tension, but stop pulling on one end and the tension is released. You and I usually like to release the tension. But as believers in Christ, we must be always in tension because God, well, God is infinite as we read in the confession earlier this morning. Infinitely complex in, in good ways. All the characteristics The makeup God are good, and they're real, and they're all necessary for him being God. But to us, they seem to pull on each other, to be in tension. God is just at one end of the rope, but God is merciful at the other end of the rope. God is sovereign on one end of the rope, and yet God requires human responsibility on the other end of the rope. You and I cannot let go of any of the characteristics of God because then we let go of part of who God is and God is no longer the glorious whole as he exists to be. I've used this quote so often, I'm sure that you all can finish it for me. From the late Dr. Robertson McQuilkin, president of Columbia International University. It's easier to go to a logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Easier to go to a logical extreme than to stay in the center of biblical tension. Going to the extreme eases the tension, but it's not helpful. Not helpful. In knowing God. And so that's why I must cause tension among us this morning. And I'm not suggesting that that tension is a good thing, but it is a necessary thing. It is a result of the fall. We, you and I, cannot comprehend God as Adam and Eve did before the fall. Sin distorts our ability to see Him clearly and purely, and completely all at once, for now. The good news is, here's the good news. One day, the tension will be gone. Scripture tells us that when he appears, we shall see him like he is. Is that good news? That's good news. But for now, but for now, you and I must live in tension We must seek to see him fully so we can love him fully and glorify him fully. And that's what we want to talk about this morning as we come once again to Isaiah chapter 40. 
So I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles to take them out now. If you don't have one, look in the pew in front of you, the rack, you should find one there. And turn in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. And when you found your place, I want to ask you to stand so that we might hear together the word that comes to us from the living God. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Through it, you reveal yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that through the power of your spirit and your word working together, we may see you more and more in the fullness of your glory. By that way, we will truly know you. Do it in us and through us, we pray now, as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we spent the entirety of our time on verse 9, and we talked about mission. And our mission is this. That you and I would look for the glory of God in all things. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. Then our mission is to show his glory to others. We heard that from the highest mountain and with the loudest voice and with the most confidence, we are to point our world to him and say to them, behold our God. That's our mission. But if we look only at verse 9, or if God had stopped speaking to us after verse 9, we would not know exactly to whom it is that we point, where to look for the glory. And so God inspires Isaiah to write about the kind of God he is and the kind of Messiah he will be when he takes on flesh and comes to dwell among human beings. We read that in verses 10 and 11. And these verses seem to put before us two extreme images of God. A mighty, powerful, strong-armed God of wrath and a gentle, tender, lamb-carrying Lord of grace. These two images alone will put us in constant tension in our lives because we must not let go of either one of these images. If we will fulfill our mission, if we'll see the glory of God for ourselves and show the glory of God to others, then we must see God in the fullness of who he is. Only then can we love him fully and glorify him fully. These verses tell us three times, behold, behold, behold. God wants us to look carefully at all of who he is. 
God wants that we not turn away from any part of who he is. And so these verses present a whole truth to us. They present a God of glory. We see the glory of his mighty wrath. We see the glory of his tender grace. We see the glory of his mighty wrath, and we see the glory of his tender grace. And so though I had hoped to talk about each of them this morning, time is only going to permit me to focus mostly this morning on the wrath of God. It's a good thing it's a rainy day, right? We're, we're ready for that. I do want to say this before we get into this, that our wrath, the wrath that you and I hurl onto others in our lives, the wrath that you and I receive from others in our lives, it's always tainted by sin. Always. And often, it's driven by sin. And as a result, the wrath that we give, the wrath that we receive, is often displayed in ugly, mean-spirited ways that would be totally unbecoming to a holy God. And so we need to remember as we talk about the wrath of God this morning that God's wrath is not tainted by sin. God's wrath is not motivated by sin. His wrath is informed by and it's enacted with complete holiness. Are we good on that? The wrath of God, not like our wrath, the wrath of God is holy. So look again in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Might, arm, and rule. These are the words that describe God. God is mighty. God is powerful. I'm going to read another passage from Isaiah, where this word might is used so that you and I can get a real feel for the word, and maybe even have a, a visceral response to it. Isaiah 28. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand. A hailstorm, a destroying tempest, a storm of mighty flowing waters. These are the most powerful realities that you and I know on earth. These are the things that overwhelm us the most, the things we dread, the things before which we feel most helpless and vulnerable and powerless to stop. And yet, God holds them all in his hand and hurls them to the earth. Such is the might of the Lord. For the word rule, three short verses. Psalm 22, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 103, the Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Romans 9, 5, Christ is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So the rule, the authority of God extends to all people of all places. 
And so we must dispel the idea if the idea lurks somewhere in the dark in our hearts or our minds that the rule of God is only for those who believe in him. Isn't that the great delusion? The great deception under which people live and legislate? Not only in politics, but in our own lives, that as long as we don't acknowledge God, he doesn't exist. And we're not accountable to him. No. He does not need to be acknowledged as God to be God and to rule over all people as God. Do you believe that? He is inescapably God who rules over all. We have Jesus' word on this. He tells us that when he comes back in glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so since all people, all people, without exception, will appear before the Lord. Our mission is vitally important to tell the world to behold our God. Now, if I were to read to you all the passages in Scripture that link the might of God, the power of God, the arm of God, and the wrath of God, we would all be here longer than we want to be here this morning. So I'm going to read just one more passage to you Again, it's from the prophet Isaiah, and it is yet another passage that speaks of the coming Messiah. And as I'm reading, you're going to think that these words were ripped straight from our headlines, straight from the culture in which we live. Listen to to Isaiah chapter 59. We know we have rebelled. And denied the Lord. We've turned our backs on our God. We know how unfair and oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty, listen, honesty has been outlawed. Yes, Truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. And if I could just interject here, this is not mainly physical oppression, though that is certainly included in it. This is spiritual oppression through spiritual leaders who have turned from God and can no longer point people to him. People to whom Jesus refers as the blind leading the blind. That's what we're talking about. Isaiah continues. So, he stepped, he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance 
and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the west, people will respect the name of the Lord. In the east, they will glorify him for he will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, says the Lord. And so the wrath of God is very real. And from the reading of this passage and from the looking around at our world, the wrath of God is completely justified because God's wrath is against all ungodliness. It's against everything or everyone who turns people away from who God is. God is love, Scripture says. God is light, love and light. As much as we fear those storms, as much as they frighten us, love and light, these are the things that draw us, that warm us, that welcome us. And they are God. And so God's wrath is a mighty, powerful shame on you, or better said, wrath on you for turning away from God for enticing others to do the same, and for all the brokenness that comes to the lives of individuals, for all the brokenness that comes to a society that has rejected the God of love and light. Wrath on you. God uses the power of his mighty arm against sin because sin mars people. Sin deforms people. And ultimately, sin kills people. And that's why God is, and we must see him as a wrathful God. You and I, we try to release the tension produced in us because of God's wrath against sin to our own detriment. Did any of you see the movie over 15 years ago, Wilberforce? I remember this scene not in perfect detail because it's been so many years ago. But in that movie, in an attempt to wake up, quote-unquote, good society to the horrors of slavery, William Wilberforce planned a very elegant outing on a beautiful ship for the elite. Wilberforce also planned to have a slave ship come right up alongside the elegant ship with the elite. And the horror of what they saw on the outrageously overcrowded slave ship and the stench of what they smelled caused many of these good people to wretch. And they demanded to be taken away so they no longer had to look at the reality of the slave ship any longer. Too many people fancy themselves as good people and prefer to ignore instead of look at the horror of sin and smell the stench of it. 
But the extent of God's love for us cannot be fathomed if we do not look at his wrath against sin and why the sin deserves such wrath against it. Sinclair Ferguson, in my opinion, is one of the greatest preachers alive today. He puts it so simply and yet so truly. God's holy wrath is poured out on what he hates because it damages and destroys what he loves. God's holy wrath is poured out on what he hates because it damages and destroys what he loves. We also have to dispel the idea that the wrath of God, it's only for the Old Testament, for that God. As if somehow the God who is unchangeable, as we also confessed him to be this morning, suddenly changed. No, the Old Testament is building to the New Testament. It isn't fizzling out, you know, the Old Testament, so that everyone would forget, so that God could then do this new thing that he planned to do. No, D.A. Carson, biblical scholar, if you're familiar with Gospel Coalition, he's a co-founder of that, he writes this, both God's love and God's wrath are ratcheted up in the move from the Old Covenant to the New, from the Old Testament to the New. These themes barrel along through redemptive history, unresolved, the wrath and the love, until they come to a resounding climax. And you can guess where, can't you? At the cross of Christ. And that's where the glory of the wrath of God meets the glory of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, I wish I could read every passage that links the wrath of God with the grace of God in the coming Messiah. But I'm only going to refer to this one that is so familiar to so many of us. Isaiah 53. You know it. It's the passage that speaks of Jesus, the coming Messiah, being despised. And rejected. Describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The one who was pierced. The one who was crushed for our sins. The one who was oppressed. The one upon whom the Lord God laid all of our iniquity. Yours and mine. The one whose soul was in anguish because the weight of the sin of the world was on him. We want to turn away from it, don't we? To hide our face from the bruising and the crushing and the piercing. That ship we wish would sail away. But we must look. We must behold the wrath of God towards sin. And this is the first verse of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. The arm of the Lord, the might of the Lord, the rule of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, all on Jesus on the cross. And what a horrific moment. Little wonder Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And please notice, Jesus asked that question, but he never received an answer. And was that not part of the anguish of his soul? Silence. Silence in those moments when he was taking on the sin of the world. Silence from the Father with whom he had had perfect, uninterrupted, glorious communication and communion for all eternity. And even on earth, when he faced some of those most important moments, at those moments the Lord said, Behold my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. But on the cross, Jesus received no answer. And so you and I cannot truly behold our God. We can't truly know the depth of the love of God if we will not look at the depth of the wrath of God and the hatred of God towards sin. If we seek to release the tension by only thinking of the Lamb carrying Lord of compassion and grace. Listen, the cross did not reconcile God to sin. The cross reconciled the sinner to God. We got to keep that straight. God is not okay with sin now because of the cross. No. But by the cross, he reconciles the sinner to himself. We must look at the wrath of God against sin so that we don't take our own sin lightly, as we often do, or refuse to look at the sin that damages and destroys not only our lives, but the lives of everyone that our sin touches. Listen, 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 please listen. Never doubt that you are Jesus' little lamb and that he carries you in his arms. He does that. But never forget that he hates your sin. Both of those are true. And both must be kept in tension. We come from varied backgrounds here. Redeemer, as far as church goes. I know this to be true. Some come from strict, legalistic, hellfire, brimstone, angry God churches. That hardly ever heard of or knew of a lamb carrying Lord. And others come from those church growth churches. They want to get real big. And so they keep the message light and happy so that the pews stay full. And those people have never heard of a strong-armed God who is holy and hates sin. And so you go, and I tend to go to the other extreme. Don't. Don't go to either extreme. Live with and live in the tension. Only by looking at the wrath of God will we know the full love of God and the glory of God in Jesus. And then we will keep running to him as the lamb carrying lamb of God. 
and then that will be blessed. Only by looking at the wrath of God will we have a passion to fulfill our mission, to point others who have not yet acknowledged Christ as King and God as ruler over all so that they might turn their faith to Jesus. As you and I say, behold our God and behold his grace to you. Let's pray. Father, we admit, or I admit admit for myself, that we like the easy way, the comfortable way. We like to avoid the tension. Lord, prevent us from doing that. Reveal yourself to us, even as we struggle in the midst of sin and the fullness of your glory, which includes your great love and your great wrath your judgment and your mercy and your grace. Lord, that tension will keep us in the center and will keep us centered on you, the center of all things. Do that for us. Be that to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.